Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, it's The Scramble. Uh, Today's September 11th. We're not going to be doing a September 11th show or segment, although I, I would like to pause anyway and just ask you, there's two things I'd like you to think about today. One of them is September 11th, which I really do feel just, well, not just, but in many of the ways that resemble our failure to understand our own country by our failure to understand the causes and aftermath of the Civil War. I think September 11th may be a modern analog to that. I think to the things that are not well understood or well appreciated about September 11th exceed the things that are. And I think September 11th is a time and an observance of a lot of different things. For some people, I think including me, um, it, it's a marker of mortality too. I mean, I think more so than any event in my living memory. It was one of those days when people in America went to work and didn't come back, didn't have any idea that that was going to happen to them. I mean, by the thousands. Um, it was also a, a time which, or an event, which touched off, I think, some pretty bad foreign policy that was also based on misunderstandings. I mean, there was no reason to go to into Iraq based on September 11th. And in many ways, our protracted involvement in Afghanistan n- doesn't represent a misunderstanding of September 11th, but it isn't exactly on point. Meanwhile, we don't still, I think, understand the Saudi Arabian role in all this. Um, certainly, if you were to identify and and work backwards along the, the, the paths of the September 11th hijackers and attackers, you get a lot more Saudi Arabian connections than you get anything else. Uh, we never really kind of come to grips with that. And in 2016, there were some rumblings about some uh, documents that might have helped us understand them better. Um uh, so, so all of that, at, at minimum, and it's part of our history that. Well, I guess the other part of our history, and I think it kind of feeds into the Alex Jones era, and the the in some respects, I don't know what the beginning of the era of fake news is, but September 11th plays a big role, and it, it's actually an event about which public opinion polling suggests that Americans don't have a lot of clarity or a lot of confidence. It's always surprising to to me how high the number is of people who don't believe the official account of September 11th. Now, that can mean many things. There are a lot of subsets of not believing the official account of September 11th, and perfectly sensible and reasonable people can can say that without necessarily believing some weird false flag scenario, some Alex Jonesy thing. But it is one of the beginnings of the ends of Americans' confidence about the official versions of things. I think you could draw a pretty direct line from September 11th to the 2016 campaign. Um, it was also, I don't know, for me, I think it is the most important news event of my lifetime. It's a news event that, um, like a lot of journalists, I was very um, – Eager is the wrong word, but I thought it was very important to get into New York as quickly as possible and begin covering it. Uh, I was at WTIC in those days doing shows from there, so it sticks in my mind very much. So the other thing I want you to just think about today, it was one of the things we had on our list of things we might talk about today on The Scramble, is Puerto Rico. And the reason for that is that uh, Puerto Rico, 
for reasons that we've covered on a, a different episode of our show, often gets the short end of the stick. And I think in this case, that's very likely. Obviously, for the days of Harvey, Houston and Louisiana and the environs commanded our attention and will also command an awful lot of financial and physical resources by way of physical of restoration. Uh, And now, of course, it's Florida and anything north of Florida that Irma gets to. And I just, you know, I'm concerned, as I usually am. I'm concerned that Puerto Rico, which took a big hit in uh, one of the outlying islands that I'm very fond of, Vieques, took a very big hit, as did uh, Culebra. Um, but, but the big island took a, took a big hit, too. And I, I think, you know, I, I would hate to see, but I expect to see, an extension of the long history of Puerto Rico and the United States, which is that it's always the stepchild. And my guess is that the resources that are directed towards mainland areas that are uh, affected by Irma and Harvey are are going to be, uh, they're going to come first. They're probably going to come first, second, and third, and Puerto Rico is going to come fourth. So obviously Connecticut has a huge Puerto Rican population. I hope that we can, A, all be loud and clear about our sense that these are our fellow citizens and they deserve the same kind of treatment that people on the mainland get. And to whatever extent the government doesn't step up, we may all have to step up privately, make sure that some of our donations are targeted towards poor Puerto Rico. All right. So let me tell you what's on the show today. Um, In the second segment, we'll talk about the mania, the kind of gold rush. It is like a gold rush uh, to try to get Amazon to relocate toward uh, or not relocate, but establish its second headquarters uh, somewhere. Um, this is one of the somewheres because every single community in the United States that wants some jobs thinks, hey, maybe we're a somewhere. We'll also talk uh, in the final segment about one of the new faces in sports, one of the new faces in tennis. Uh, We'll talk about Sloane Stevens, uh, who uh, was a big winner this weekend. I want to also especially talk about the 19-second hug. She and her opponent, Madison Keys, um, hugged for 19 seconds after the match. Um, I think that, you know, we're all desperate for any sign of a nation and a society that's able to get along. So um, maybe those are people that we can look to uh, for a little bit of inspiration. We're going to begin, though, uh, as we so often do with the Trump administration. Uh, Joining us right now is John Nichols, um, national correspondent for the nation and the author of most recently, uh, Horseman of the, Tr- the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. Uh, he's the associate editor of Capital Times and a contributor to uh, many uh, publications. And I think he's now settled into a comfortable chair in the studios of KUOW in Seattle. John Nichols, are you there? I am totally here. I'm delighted to be with you. We were, we were uh, rushing around a little uh, to find our way in Seattle, but we made it. And I just want to tell you, Colin, that uh, apropos, I, I swear I didn't do this mm. because I was coming on your show. Mm-hmm. But if you go to the Top of the Nation website, mm-hmm. the story I just put up, I, I wrote it last night a little bit this morning. Mm-hmm. Hurricane ravaged Puerto Rico and the Virgin <laughs> Islands are part of the U.S. too. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, we're, we're on the same page about a lot of stuff. And I'm not too surprised that we're on the same page about that. Uh, I do it's an important work. one, though, because they lack elected representation. They don't right. have voting representatives. And uh, if you know anything about how disaster relief happens, it is, it is hugely powered by politics in Congress. It's tragedy, but it's true. And the, that lack of voting representation becomes a big issue. So what you're doing in Connecticut is very important because Connecticut does have 
voting representatives in the House and the Senate. And if those representatives pick up this issue, if they hear from their constituents that what happens to Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands matters, and they pick it up, it can have a real impact. Yeah, I'd be very surprised if John Larson has not heard from uh, Puerto Rican constituents and Puerto Rican groups. I, I hope he has because, yeah, the, you're right. That's the only way the, the money is going to get there. So I want to talk to you about the book, which is kind of a yeah. bestiary of 2016 and 2017. Um, uh, fantastic beasts and where to find them. Uh, they all turn out to be working in the Trump administration. Although maybe, maybe a place to begin is, I mean, there's no way to write a book about the Trump administration, no matter what you do, how close to deadline uh, you're still writing, you know, whether it goes directly from your, your word processing equipment <laughs> into uh, Amazon. You can't keep up with the headlines. So some of the horsemen of the apocalypse have been unhorsed, notably Steve Bannon, who will be talking about Sebastian Gorka, uh, if you want to go back a little bit, uh, Mike Flynn. Do, is that significant? I mean, the the, the people that we're talking about, they re, they're sort of like two Donald Trumps anyway. And so the Donald Trump that's an anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant ideologue, the, some of those people seem to be gone. Does that matter? Uh, a, it doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, I didn't write the book with any sense that, that people wouldn't, you know, kind of shuffle in positions. And so far, it's followed pattern exactly as the book outlines and, and suggests. B, um, they're not really gone. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot begin to emphasize to you that of the troika, if you will, of uh, particularly troublesome players, and that was Steve Bannon, Sebastian Gorka, and Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller was the most troubling. He was mm -hmm. the guy most closely tied to Jeff Sessions, who will oversee so many of these issues in the Department of Justice, and also to uh, Breitbart. Uh, obviously, Bannon is more closely tied, but but Miller had that tie as well, and to many of the alt-right and far-right uh, individuals and groupings. He's still in the thick of the White House, very powerful. And so people shouldn't comfort themselves with the fantasy that a staffing shift uh, around Donald Trump matters much. And the other component of that that I would really emphasize is this. There are many people who will be a part of the Trump organization. This was true in business. This was true when he was doing The Apprentice. Now it's true as president, who might be banished from the room for a season, might be you know sent off to do a side project, but are still very much a part of defining Donald Trump and a part of defining uh, where his power is exercised. And Bannon is the classic example of that. Bannon chose for himself the title chief strategist. His exit was a strategy move. Anyone who imagines for a second that he does not remain exceptionally influential as regards the Trump presidency, and frankly, very likely to circle back into Trump's uh, you know, inner councils at certain points, is really lying to themselves. It's just not the case at all. He is not gone. And uh, he will be around much longer than many of the people who, you know, kind of our flavors of the moment, like a General Kelly. You know, obviously, Bannon was on 60 Minutes last night, um, said some things that weren't terribly surprising. But it does look like kind of a strange moment where you've got Bannon threatening to head up some kind of 
Freedom Caucus on steroids insurgency. Um, and, and you've got Trump, on the other hand, making common cause with uh, the now so-called Chuck and Nancy. Um, you, you've got Trump doing this kind of weird sequence where he has Sessions, who, as you point out in your book, is, is a flag waved, uh, friendly flag waved to that anti-immigrant uh, uh, yes. and anti-Muslim sort of Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, uh, Sebastian Gorka group. So he, he brings it out. He brings out the, uh, the, the DACA repeal. Appeal. And then a few days go by and suddenly Trump is kind of running a different set of plays and talking about revisiting it. And really, his problem was more process. And he wants Paul Ryan to uh, make an honest woman uh, out of DACA. Um, and, and I don't know, how are we supposed to interpret? I feel like there's sort of two Trumps, you know, there's this one Trump that we've been talking about. And then this other Trump who seems to want himself to be more palatable to a larger group of Americans. You're, you're very astute in, in looking at this. But there aren't really two Trumps. Uh, there's one Trump. And he has, for a very, very long time, had a willingness to uh, kind of travel that shadow line as regards uh, racialized, uh, xenophobic politics. Going back to before he ran for president, remember, this is the guy who's, who <laughs> came to prominence politically, suggesting that the first African-American president uh, wasn't born in the United States. And so this is a guy who, who plays the game where he thinks the action is. And uh, Charlottesville, the, the events that occurred in Charlottesville, shook the administration. There's simply no question of that. And they recognized that they had a problem. And the problem isn't the one that I think most of the media imagined. And, I, and I, again, this comes up a lot in the book. Uh, media doesn't know how to cover this guy, by and large. And as a result, he, media generally continuously be played by him. Um, the problem with Charlottesville was that their long-term messaging to the alt-right and to uh, an exceptionally conservative grouping within the Republican base, which they need politically because their overall approval ratings are so low, that suddenly surfaced. It, be, it came above the shadow line, if you will, and people became aware of you know this this connectedness, the uh, when the president said, you know, fine people and both sides and all these, you know, kind of equivocating words, those were messages for a fringe in his base that they want to keep enthusiastic and on board. Um, but they they suddenly turned into something that was damaging with mainstream Republican voters and obviously Republican-leaning independents. And so now they've, they've danced back over and they're going to try and send some more pleasant signals. But... I cannot begin to emphasize to you that even as, you know, there's a suggestion, oh, maybe Trump is, you know, sending better signals, maybe he's easing up on some of this. What have we seen, you know, in just in the last month? And, and it's amazing that it's only the last month. Horrible reaction to Charlottesville, of course. Pardoning of Joe Arpaio. The sessions out front on DACA. Uh, incredible saber rattling as regards North Korea that has made you know diplomacy harder for everyone uh, and then a host of other moves within the uh, the different agencies that I write about things happening every single day that move farther and farther to the extreme right on issues of choice gay rights uh, and, and a host of business matters as regards moving closer to a, a corporate agenda the fact of the matter is this is the most right-wing Republican administration in the history of the country, and 
if you look away from you know the occasional variations in tweets, uh, it's on a straight trajectory. There's there's no evidence of a moderation here. So when you look at, say, Bannon's proclamation uh, about running this kind of insurgency, what you would see there is, in fact, a way of putting heat on McConnell and Paul Ryan, whom Trump ultimately regards as too centrist, too uh, accommodating, too attached to typical procedures of government. Uh, and and the, the way to move them is to threaten their people uh, with opponents in primaries. Yes, and to continue to keep the pressure on folks in the White House, folks like Gary Cohn uh, and, and a lot of the Goldman Sachs people who are um, who want a, a relative moderation on some of the social issues so that they can continue what is what is really a very arch neoliberal uh, agenda as regards economics and austerity agenda as regards domestic economics. And, and so there are pushes and pulls within the administration. And also there are pushes and pulls regarding where Donald Trump himself chooses to go. But what I strongly emphasize is that if people take a breath and they step back, what they will see is exactly what Steve Bannon said, not on 60 Minutes the other night, but uh, at the uh, CPAC conference back in you know early days of the administration, where he said their primary goal is the, um, the deconstruction of the administrative state. And they really are doing that. They really are taking over agencies and making them lies to their name. I read a lot about Scott Pruitt in the book. Scott Pruitt is a militant critic of the Environmental Protection Agency who on a daily basis makes it less and less inclined to protect the environment. Right. Uh, and I, Rex, I, would, I, would yeah. put, yeah, I would put Betsy DeVos in that category too, somebody who's- Without just, a doubt. Yeah. Yes. And, and this is the thing. When And I read a lot about Betsy DeVos in the book because she should not be in this position. This is not a, a Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative calculation. If you watched her confirmation hearing, it was a stunning hearing. I mean, she was literally confronted with the reality that she did not know the basics about federal programs dealing with education. She didn't know which were federal, which were state. She struggled with core issues. And then when Bernie Sanders asked her if she thought she would be sitting in that chair uh, awaiting confirmation to become the person overseeing education in the United States of America, if she hadn't and she and her family hadn't given around 200 and some million dollars to Republican candidates, including people on the committee, Betsy DeVos's answer wasn't, yeah, I'm an expert in education. I've been on school boards and I've been on state boards of education. I know my way around all these issues. She didn't say that because she couldn't. She's never been on a school board. She's never you know, taught education in a long-term way or done, done that. No, her answer was, well, I, I think probably. Like she had this equivocating answer like even she knew it was absurd and um, that she was there because she was a campaign donor, not an expert in education. We're talking to John Nichols right now. Uh, his book is Horseman of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. So, yeah, I, I do feel and we at this show are struggling all the time with this question of, you know, there's there's this enormous uh, three ring circus that we're covering that's being conducted in a very public way. And then there's like this 20 ring circus that involves the evisceration of various cabinet departments and the changing of the mission of uh, of actual agencies of the United States that's uh, less covered. And, and, uh, and we struggle to make sure that we're 
trying to keep up a little bit with it. Um, I do feel like one of the things that unfolded maybe a little bit more publicly than they might have planned. So if we go back to that day when Trump was standing in front of Trump Tower, supposedly about to announce his infrastructure initiative, and then because he's had he had to kind of make nice about Charlottesville the day before, he just reverts to type and just flips out about Charlottesville uh, and about race and about the people who are at Charlottesville and about the media. Um, and, and it just turns into this kind of Trump Tower speech moment. That's how it gets uh, understood. And, and But, you know, as you know, he was standing there with Elaine Chow, his transportation secretary, the wife of Mitch McConnell uh, and some other people about to kind of unfold this infrastructure plan. And one of the things he was there to announce that day is the rescinding of an Obama administration rule that requires infrastructure projects, roads, bridges, stuff like that, to be able to withstand the, the consequences of climate change, like rising sea levels. And so a couple of things have happened since then. I mean, you know, storms, for example. Um, and know. so people kind of, <laughs> I, I, and you sort of wonder, well, you sort of wonder, that's the kind of thing, certain things can be done in secrecy. That's the kind of thing that might ease out into the public. But he doesn't seem to have a lot of trouble defending himself. I mean, there's never there's never a, an equivalent storm of public opinion. Right. You, you nailed it. And um, I it's funny, it came out, or at least in part, when I wrote a big story on the front page of the Nation website about what Elaine Shaw was really doing there. Um, when I was writing the book or when the book uh, came together, uh, some people asked me why I wrote such a large section on Elaine Chow, you know, who is seemingly one of the, the less frightening or less unsettling members of, of the Trump administration. She doesn't come off as a Jeff Sessions, for instance, or uh, doesn't have the sort of uh, many, many narrow and, and, and troubling agendas of, of someone like a Rex Tillerson at the State Department. But Elaine Chow is somebody who's been a hanger-on on Republican administrations now for, for a generation. And every time she is involved with an agency, uh, she uses her power, the power extended from a president, in this case, President Trump, to make that agency more friendly to business, uh, less friendly to workers, more friendly to investors, less friendly to, say, the environment. And and I, I really want people to understand that this is how they have to look at this administration. Donald Trump has put people into positions of power where they will be overseeing trillion-dollar infrastructure programs, where they will be overseeing the military-industrial complex, incredible defining entities, realities in our politics and our governance. In many cases, we know almost nothing about them. And... We know very, very little about their clearly defined agendas, or at least they have not been reported. I know you do a good job, Colin. I've heard you. And there's other people like you across this country. But that, that broad coverage, that intensive coverage that might focus attention on one of these agencies, one of these individuals, is, is scant. And so that's why I wrote the book. I, it is my desire to say to people that, that we don't want to wake up three and a half years from now or at some period in the future and say, well, you know, Donald Trump's president, Donald Trump himself wasn't all that successful. He got in a lot of trouble. He was criticized a lot. But boy, when we step back, his appointees changed America in ways that it will be very difficult, in some senses, impossible to reverse. And we have to be conscious of that now or we really fail uh, in our observation of this administration. And frankly, for those who, who oppose it, in our resistance to it. 
You know, I, we're going to run out of time here, John Nichols, but um, one of the things that I, I'm intrigued by, and I'm sure you've thought about this, I mean, when we talk about some of these cabinet agencies um, and enforcement agencies be doing what is sought after by business or being friendly to business and maybe placing business interests above the public good, um, you know, that's getting more complicated, right? There were an awful lot of businesses that didn't want any kind of abrogation of the Paris Climate Accords. There were even businesses that didn't want to change that federal flood risk management standard for climate resilience that I just talked right. about. You know, businesses right. bu- businesses aren't any more monochromatic or monolithic than, than anything else. Some of the Trump policies seem, I mean, look, I work in Connecticut. We still have a lot of insurance companies here. They know there's climate change. They have to pay <laughs> yes. out on it. So yeah, yeah. maybe can you, can you talk a little bit? When we say sure. business, what do we mean? Well, it's, it's a free-floating reality, right? The different businesses in different circumstances. And you know, a huge portion of the book is devoted to Pentagon, Department of State, Mick Mulvaney over at OMB, this interplay that is supercharging uh, the military-industrial complex, moving money out of domestic programs over to the Pentagon and to Pentagon contractors. That's one area of business, and we should be talking a lot more about it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there are businesses that favor single-payer Medicare for all health care. Uh, There are terrific businesses. The problem is Donald Trump and the people around him are aligned with a set of businesses that have been often in the forefront of winking and nodding toward climate change denial, sometimes actually pushing for it, of businesses that uh, seek to develop coastal plains and thus want to have, you know, lax infrastructure rules because it makes it easier to quickly develop things. And, and you know, one of the things I focus on in the book is the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, where Ben Carson has been situated. Uh, look, that department has a huge defining role as regards public housing. If we start to privatize public housing, you are going to be selling off parcels of land very prime parcels of land, often in, in near downtowns, near waterfronts, and there'll be a rush to do that. And I'll tell you, for Donald Trump and people like him, that makes a lot of sense because they've made a fortune on development. But for the rest of us, for people who care about housing, for people who, and including businesses who think, you know, look, a, a functional society uh, has affordable housing in our cities, uh, this could be a disastrous development. And housing experts really worry about that. That's, again, one of the things I try to bring out in the book is that there are issues on the horizon that we aren't even beginning to touch on. And for that reason, uh, we've just scratched the surface of John Nichols's book, Horseman of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. You want to get it, you can have it right next to your Roger Tory Peterson. You see birds at the bird feeder, you look at Roger, you see lobbyists at the trough, you look at John's book. Uh, who is that guy? You can look him right up. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. This has been a great show. Thanks for having me on. All right. So we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the great Amazon gold rush and whether it's a good thing. I mean, whether it would even be a good thing if you could get something like that in your community. Like, for example, this one. With those tiny little hands. Because the man in the tinfoil hat is sitting on the throne tonight. It kind of feels
So last Thursday night, I had to meet somebody for a drink. It was one of those things where they bid at a charity auction or something, at a silent auction, <laughs> for the incredible privilege of sitting with the world's most awkward antisocial person, me. Um, so I, I met a couple of guys, and it just turned out what they really wanted to talk about, because it was Thursday, was this whole Amazon thing. Uh, Amazon, as you probably know, Jeff Bezos, uh, the CEO of Amazon, announced earlier Thursday that it needs a second U.S. headquarters and is looking to bring up to 50,000 workers. Uh, and its massive urban presence to some lucky city. Um, so, so this is, it's, it's kind of as if you applied uh, economic development and, and corporate expansion, if you applied to that matrix the principles that stand behind The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. So uh, what city is going to – if you get a rose, you stay, right? Is that, I don't actually watch those shows. Is that the idea? You get a rose, you stay? Okay. So which lucky city is going to ultimately get the rose uh, and be able to spend the rest of its life with Amazon? Um, and is that a good thing, too? I mean, I have a lot of questions about whether, this, whether winning would be a good thing. But let's – before we talk about that, and I know that Henry will be ready to do both of these, but before we do that, let's talk to Henry Graybar, uh, writer for Slate Magazine's Moneybox uh, – uh, let's talk, uh, uh, first of all, about the contest itself and what you would have to do uh, if you were going to win. Uh, Henry, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. So let's let's talk about the uh, contest is maybe the wrong word, or maybe it's the right word. Um, so what is Bezos saying that he needs in order to move all these people to a place? Sure. So he's he's outlined in an RFP that Amazon released last week his stipulations for the city that would become the home of Amazon HQ2, as they're calling it. And as you might expect, he basically gave the laundry list of attributes of an ideal city, um, which is to say large population, job growth, um, good university system, uh, mass transit, high quality of life, low housing costs. Um, so I think you know no city truly has all those attributes. An international airport, um, no city really checks all those boxes. But I think that by by putting them in the RFP, he 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 will uh, encourage every city participating in this competition to try and um, either uh, you know ensure that those attributes are met uh, in order to get the Amazon HQ, um, or at least uh, ensure every city that they that, you know they have a chance to, to participate. So, yeah, so that that part and the part of me that wants to believe the best uh, uh, in everybody, I was sort of thinking, well, maybe he's actually I mean, most of the things that you just mentioned are things that cities should and metropolitan areas areas should either have or want to have. You know, I mean, he talks about uh, things like diversity and, and tolerance and stuff. I mean, even things like that. So those are good things. Mass transit is good. A lot of these things are good. Uh, cultural uh, richness, all those things are good. On the other hand, you know, I think back to our founding fathers, Henry. I think about, you know, even the most uh, fervent opponent of strong central government. I don't think they could have imagined the devolution of America into essentially 50 gas stations, all of them with a different price up on their LED sign up there and, and just sort of, you know, inviting people <laughs> to come. And so, so the other part of this is the gimme, gimme, gimme part, right? I mean, Bezos is essentially saying, yeah, I'll come there, but I expect unbelievably favorable conditions. 
Yeah, and this is pretty much par for the course now when, you know, jobs have become so, you know, back in the day, 150 years ago or something like that, a company might set up shop in a city based on access to a deep water natural harbor or a river that was powering a, uh, a mill or something like that. And there were, you know, real features that determined, real geographic fixed features that determined what made good business locations, um, being on a canal or a railroad hub or something like that. Um, these days, of course, most of these jobs are done in an office. They could be done anywhere. Um, and so he, has, he and, and every other corporate leader in America has a lot of power when they put these cities against each other and say, who's going to come up with the best uh, incentives package? Uh, who's going to cut taxes the most? Who's going to give us the best parcel of downtown land? Who's going to bend over backwards to meet our needs? I mean, you saw this with the, the Google Fiber sweepstakes a few years ago, where you had, uh, I think it was Topeka, Kansas, that changed their name to, to Google for the day. Um, and it was just the cities falling over each other. And, and even, you know, sports teams, which you think would be among the more um, rooted institutions, since they do depend so heavily on, on fandom, um, have proven to be actually some of the worst actors in this. And you have owners... Um, both pitting cities and suburbs against each other, but also proving that they're willing to just up and abandon a fan base of decades if they get a better deal from a city across the country. And so, I mean, that starts something of a race to the bottom, particularly when you get states and municipalities weaving, you know, various kinds of regulations that protect the environment or whatever it is that these companies want. And But I think what we have here is kind of there's almost kind of an Amazon paradox here. When you think about the, the, the place that Amazon describes wanting to go, it's a place that has good mass transit so that people can get around very easily. It's a place that has rich cultural opportunities so that people can get out of the house and, and, and go do things. Um, it, it's a place that has a rich, multifarious, diverse environment, including one would assume you know cities with lots of really cool stuff in them, um, cool little shops and things like that. And so that's the Amazon paradox. Amazon exists to suck the life out of a lot of this kind of stuff. I mean, the, the, the net effect of Amazon is for people to stay home, not go to cool little shops, and not to go much of anywhere, and just to have everything delivered to their doorsteps by drones eventually. Yeah, I think that, you know, the part of the irony here is that the cities that are the most attractive and that, that you know, Amazon employees would probably most like to live in are, so, you know, part of what defines them is their vibrant you know, this, this strong fabric of local businesses. And that doesn't just mean cute places to shop and nice places to hang out, but it has a sort of social effect. I mean, you have uh, the owner of a you know, store that sells pots and pans could, say, sponsor a Little League team in the way that, um, you know, a, a, a local Walmart that replaces um, dozens of stores might not. So um, there is certainly some irony in that. That said, the scale of this deal is just beyond anything that has ever happened before. Um, the largest single office holder in a U.S. city besides Amazon is Citigroup in New York. They have 3.7 million square feet of office space. Amazon is suggesting they could build something more than twice that size. So um, this is this is really a sweepstakes that I think that almost every city in the country that thinks they even have a tiny shot is going to propose is going to propose something. I mean, a way to think about this, the way for me with my um, tiny brain to think about this is uh, that uh, in 
in, in Seattle, um, Amazon has this thing where they give out free bananas. And they essentially, A, cornered the banana market for a while in Seattle, Seattle and depressed the value of bananas that anybody else was selling just, just because they were giving away so many free bananas to their employees. And, and, so, um, and, and maybe that's symbolic of a problem, right? I mean, there are places that could probably absorb something of the physical size and the numerical size of what you're describing. Um, I, I suppose Boston wouldn't really change that much just because Amazon was there. But an awful lot of a, a lot of other places would run the risk of becoming kind of company towns, right? I mean, this it's so big right. that you, if you put it in a lot of places, then it's the company town, right? And th- there's this is weird thing here going on where, where Seattle is not uh, Seattle is a not a huge city. It's seven hundred thousand people, but the metro area is one of the biggest twenty in the country. It's four million people almost. Um, and if you think about the extent to which Seattle has begun to feel like a company town, it makes you realize what the impact of Amazon's HQ2 might be in a place like, say, Pittsburgh or Austin, which I think think of themselves as the new cities of um, you know this new tech era. I mean, Pittsburgh being a hub for Uber and Austin having Whole Foods and UT. I mean, they're the places that think of themselves as maybe competing for this. If Amazon moved to Pittsburgh and they didn't bring in any new workers, they would have to employ one out of every 20 people in the metro area to staff up to 50,000, which is what they say they're going to do. So um, there's this thing where Amazon could do two things. Either it serves as a tremendous engine of growth and revitalization in a city that is of not the biggest size, so that would be a place like um, you know, a Baltimore or even a Philadelphia would be a totally transformative thing, and that's the fifth biggest city in the country. Or they think, we need 50,000 people. We need people across all skill sets, all skill levels, all um, levels of the corporate structure. And that means that um, it's possible that they won't be considering anything but the biggest metro areas, um, which would be New York, L.A., uh, D.C. potentially, and that that comes with other costs too. You know, the, the housing costs are expensive, land is expensive. It's not a whole lot of space to build in Midtown Manhattan. Um, so, it depends what they want. Right. I mean, in a way, the answer is no to everywhere. The, you probably saw the New York Times upshot uh, did a kind of regressive analysis and wound up with it being in Denver. But I mean, one another possibility would be that they ignore some of the criteria that they've set out and go into a place that's not heavily populated, where there's a lot of land, the land is cheap. Um, and then, I mean, if they go into, so to say, greater Boise or Ketchum, Idaho or something, you know, they would change a lot of things, right? 50,000 new people in some places would change the entire flavor of that place. Yeah, we were, we were kind of joking about this, that, that, you know, there were some dark horse candidates where Amazon could move their headquarters to Wyoming and suddenly... Um, their employees and their employees' spouses could potentially, you know, elect a senator, something like that. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's a publicly traded company and governed by um, a board of directors, and I think that they will probably choose something more cautious and more conservative than, than trying to, you know, um, amass political power in some uh, sparsely populated locale. It is, of course, possible that they could throw away some of their requirements and, and decide that maybe mass transit or something like that is not so important or a good university system isn't that important. But at the same time, Amazon in downtown Seattle, whatever you think of Amazon, the company, has been a, a progressive outlier in the design of their campus. It's, it's downtown, it's walkable, it's accessible via mass transit, and that stands in sharp contrast to what 
say, Apple has built in Silicon Valley, where they've got what they claim to be the greenest campus on Earth, and it's got 12,000 parking spaces. So Amazon has so far been a countervailing force, helping companies move downtown. That means workers can choose where to live more freely. Um, and, and, and I guess the question is, is that something, is that a high priority for them as they go forward looking for the second headquarters? We're talking to Henry Graybar. Uh, Henry Graybar is uh, the writer for Slate's, Slate Magazine's Money Box. I'll read him there. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. I will also say that on Wednesday morning, uh, I will be solo hosting The Wheelhouse. And I think we're pretty sure that we're going to talk about this. I think we're going to talk uh, specifically about how Connecticut does or doesn't. Emphasis on doesn't match up with some of these requirements. But thanks very much to Henry for talking to us today. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back uh, and talk about something a little bit more life-enhancing. Tennis, specifically, tennis's new star. Wireless mouse, watermelon globe, great wall art, whale snow globe, Xerox paper, Xbox game, xylophone, x-ray machine, yoga pants. Yu-Gi-Oh, yogurt maker, or yo-yo, Zippo lighter, Zelda flask, and to finish it off, the zebra mask. Because <laughs> that's what you can get on Amazon. Excuse me, officer, can you tell me how to get to computers, electronics, and office supplies? I think it used to be called Weathersfield. Today's show is produced for our Amazon Masters by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is available with Prime memberships. The part of Bill Curry was played by Betsy DeVos. On tomorrow's show, the other kind of Amazons. And now, back to Colin. Yes, we feel like you've, uh, I feel like I'm Peter Sagal or something, but you've been talking way too much about that kind of Amazon. We're going to talk about the actual Amazons who are a historical or were a historical reality. Uh, we have lots to tell you about that. So that's tomorrow. Right now, um, uh, speaking of strong athletic women anyway, uh, we want to talk a little bit about tennis, uh, about the newest uh, tennis champion. Uh, to do that, Peter Bodo, covering tennis for over 35 years, most recently for ESPN, is the author of many numerous books, including The Courts of Babylon and with Pete Sampras, A Champion's Mind. Uh, so um, obviously there was a, a, a big change of power yesterday. Peter Bodo, first of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, introduce us to Sloane Stevens. Oh, uh, uh, thanks very much. Great to be with you. Um, you know, Sloane Stevens, you know, she, well, for a tennis fan, she needs no introduction. I mean, everyone had, uh, who, who watches the game with, with some measure of interest saw how much talent she has for, for a number of years now, ever since she reached her Australian Open finally at the age of 20, uh, just about uh, four years ago. But, you know, then she sort of went under the radar for a while. So the sporting public, the general public, uh, who tunes in only for the Grand Slams, maybe the U.S. Open, they've really got a very good look at her, I think, in that final. One of the interesting things to me about her, this is a battle, first of all, by two rising tennis stars, her and Madison Keys. And then at the end, much has been made of this, but I think justly so. After she won, she went over to the net. She embraced her opponent for 19 seconds. Somebody tied it. And then she kind of did the Williams sisters thing where they went over and they sat together while everything was set up for the award ceremony, which although the Williams sisters do it, it's really not part of tennis tradition. So much. What did you make of all that? Well, you know, it really was pretty self-evident. These two girls are genuinely fond of each other. They have this great, healthy, emotional 
ability, help the ability to keep their competitive instincts, you know, within, within proper borders, I looked their besties. And uh, there was nothing. It was a wonderful moment because there was really nothing forced about it. You're right about the fact that sitting together is not a Grand Slam tradition for someone, for the winner to get up. You know, the funny thing is it's, you look at the winner getting up and going and sitting with the loser. That's a much tougher thing for the loser than for the winner because the, the winner's elated. Anything can happen. For the loser, that's a very, very tough moment. And, you know, most losers probably want to be alone with their thoughts and with their, you know, just kind of pull themselves together for the for the trophy presentation, deal with the bitter taste of defeat. So it tells you also something about about both women. Keys really needed the support. You could see she's, very, she's a very emotional young lady. She was first Grand Slam final. She was vulnerable. So for uh, for Sloan Stevens to go over and sit down with her really was and was an asset in this situation. It seems as though this would be if I mean, obviously, it's jumping the gun to say that this could turn into a really interesting rivalry. Both of these players have to prove themselves again and again, and maybe especially uh, Stevens. Uh, if it were a rivalry, it would be kind of it would be one of the more interesting ones, partly because, as you've suggested, of slight differences in their temperament. One senses senses that Keys is an emotionally volatile person, not only sitting over there after the match, but during the match, she, she her spirits rise and fall very much with the flow of the game. Uh, and and she personalizes uh, every twist and turn. Uh, Stevens sa- seems like a, a little bit more of a, a, a calmer player, a little bit more zen-like. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know whether I'm even describing them accurately. I don't know that much about tennis. But if so, that would be a really interesting rivalry. Well, I think I think you did very well in the description. One thing you did not include in description, particularly, which is of interest from a kind of an athletic point of view, but it also makes for what is so satisfying about certain rivalries is a contrast in styles. You know, Keys is a big hitter; a go for broke, end the point, set the point up, and end it as quickly as possible. Make your shot, you know, uh, pull the trigger. Uh, and Sloane Stevens is the opposite. Sloane Stevens is a counterpuncher. She's going to sort of feel her way around. She's going to try to outthink you, outsmart you, outmaneuver you, but generally not outhit you, even though she has plenty of power. So, you know, if, you know, the rivalry you really think about in comparison, what you would hope this could become is something like a WTA version of the Federer-Nadal rivalry, where you have two players who have, you know, you know, different personalities as well. Stevens is much more sort of wry and, you know, almost, you know, almost cynical. I want to say under the surface, she's a very uh, worldwide girl. Uh, uh, Stevens is uh, Keys. I think is a little bit more sort of immature, perhaps a little more vulnerable. But you've got the makings of of this great contrast, in both in personalities and styles, but also this respect for each other, which is something that also that Nadal and Federer have that people really, really, I think, like. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because we often talk about sports as needing a rivalry, that sports do, any individual sport will do better if there's a marquee rivalry. But I think one of the things that we forget sometimes is that the people in those rivalries ultimately have more in common with each other just because of lived experience than they do with anybody else in the world. So now you've got a world in which, I mean, Magic Johnson can't talk about Larry Bird without tearing up, you know, and, and Max, Max Schmeling became Joe Lewis's friend and helped him through uh, bad times when Lewis was down and out and, and impoverished. These two men were lifelong friends. And and McEnroe and Borg, you know, and I, to me, when you were say, saying this will resemble rivalry, I was thinking maybe you were going to say McEnroe and Borg. Uh, McEnroe, the powder keg, Borg, obviously, the ice. Um, you know, but uh, they have this lifelong friendship, too, celebratedly when Borg was uh, having some financial problems and was trying to sell some of his most important trophies. McEnroe got on the phone with them and said, don't you dare 
sell your trophies. What are you talking about? Um, and and in a way, those are the things that really inspire him. That's that's what thirty thirty documentaries turn out to be, right? About these ferocious looking rivalries that are really about a common lived experience. Well, yes, of course. There's one caveat, though, you have to add is that Macro, Macro made that phone call after both of them were long retired. Sure. If it was during their careers, you know, he might have, he might have put in a high bid and gotten the trophies and teased them with it or something. You know, there's, there's one thing, that, you know, in tennis, uh, that it, it's unavoidable in tennis. There just is a real, and, and actually this has increased over the years, but there's a real kind of a, a, a reluctance to engage your main rivals. There's, you know, you've got your entourage, you live in your bubble. Uh, the other person is seen as a, you're, you're the biggest obstacle for you, and so there's really not that much of a uh, of contact. You know, you go back and you look at the other rivalries. You know, on the other side of the coin, from what you mentioned, you've got Connors McEnroe, uh, you know, McEnroe Lendl. You've got um, Sampras Agassi, who had no great love for each other particularly. Uh, so, so I think I think to have this kind of rivalry where the players at as the rivalry is starting or reaching a peak or, or right into it, where they respect each other, uh, that's that's really pretty special. And Chris and Martina have that. It happened a little bit later than some people might think, but it did happen, and it was in in effect they were friends, very good friends through most most of their rivalry. Um, really quick question: We're almost out of time. Uh, four women in the semifinals, four American women in the semifinals at the U.S. Open. Seems like the American women a little bit ahead of the men's program these days. Yeah, they are. But, you know, as Martin Blackman, head of the USA player development, you know, pointed out to me the other day when I was talking to him about this, he said, you know, the women tend to break through a little bit quicker. So you tend to hear the names of the women who do really well a little bit faster. Look, we've got some wonderful women in the pipeline and they're overlapping generations, starting with the keys, with starting with the keys generation, actually starting with the Vandaway keys, the four semifinalist generation, you go all the way down the line there. They're 18 year olds, they're 16 year olds. There were two American girls in the junior final, including 13 year old Corey Goff. Remember that name, because you're going to hear that a lot in the future. The men, a little bit slower, but they had that excellent crop of people led by Francis Tiafo and Taylor Fritz, um, Tommy Paul, and those kids, Escobedo. They're actually right now just facing that reality of having a breakthrough from being like number 150, 100, in the 50s, whatever. And, and they're coming along. All right, Peter Bodo, we're going along. we got to go. You were great, though. Thanks so much, Peter Bodo. Covering tennis for a mere 35 years, uh, most recently for ESPN, the author of numerous books, including The Courts of Babylon and with Pete Sampras, A Champion's Mind. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with Amazon's. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan, Kion Wolf, and the whole team for today's show. Let's go down to the tennis court and talk it